Welcome to the 25th episode of Tomorrow Never Knows, the podcast on women, history, politics, what else do we talk about? Culture, Culture feminism. Yeah. Everything that interests us. And we yeah. are Emma London. And Charlotte Lydia Riley. And this is the second of our two-part mini-series on mm-hmm. mothering, motherhood and stuff. And yeah. the f- first episode in this series is episode number 23. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is episode 25. Um, and we're going to be talking about representations because last time we kind of talked in more looser terms about mothers in the workplace, yeah. mothers working. Mothers in politics. Yeah. Ideas about what it means, like the political project of being a mother. Yeah. And today it's culture. There's been quite a lot, because we were talking about how there's been a renaissance, or is it maybe a naissance? Yeah. <laughs> Not sure it's been around before. Um, a new wave of literature, of yeah. writing, and of thinking about motherhood and mothers, and from what is from afar seen as coming from a very critical perspective, yeah. like actually critiquing motherhood, yeah. calling it out for the, and I am a mother, so I can say this for all the boring bits mm-hmm. that really get on your nerves and the kind of and just. I think just taking seriously the idea of women or people who can have children, thinking about, like, deciding, making decisions about whether or not to have children, which Mm. in many ways, you know, the reason this is kind of a cultural moment now rather than earlier is because we more and more, you know, terrible legislation in Alabama, horrible politics of Northern Ireland notwithstanding, Mm. we more and more assume that this is a choice that is... A choice, right? Yeah. Like generationally, this is a choice mm. for women. Um, either way, really, we have a, we have a choice to end pregnancies, but we also the availability of um, fertility treatments yes. is is larger. So, the idea of about motherhood and having children being something that you you need to actively think about, and even pregnancy or being unable to conceive doesn't mean you're not going to be a mother. Yeah. And I think. I think maybe part of it's it's about taking seriously the idea that this is about decisions and thinking and theorising. And, yeah. Um, Willa um, Paskin, in her review of Sheila Hetty's book Motherhood, which is one of the one of these books that kind of takes mothers and motherhood seriously, um, asked in her in her review why, when there are scores of new books about mothers and mothering and motherhood, does it continue to feel like there aren't any? Yeah. Um, I think that's a really interesting point. I have a friend who very recently became a mother for the first time and I sent her a link to um, a blog post by mm-hmm. Ludwig Brock, which I read when I was a new mother and found quite revolutionary. Because mm-hmm. in it, Ludwig, I think we might have mentioned it before, but in it, Ludwig talks about how the brains of women uh, are completely... Well, undervalued yeah. when they become mothers. People talk about sort of baby brain baby or brain, like yeah. breastfeeding brain or whatever. And mm-hmm. it's sort of the assumption is that women become less intellectually capable while yeah. they have small children. And yeah, to some extent, you are tired and you might not necessarily remember where your keys are at all points. I personally had that struggle. But what Ludwig so clearly points out in her her writing is that 
at the same time, you're learning all of these things. Mm-hmm. I've never learned anything as quickly as when I was a new mum. No. And I think that's a point that she makes as well. You learn everything from, you know, mm-hmm. you, how to decipher various cries, various poos, mm-hmm. various mm-hmm. other needs, and how to keep this little thing alive, mm-hmm. which is, you know, kind of a big skill. And I think a lot of people who have their first children will say that they are not prepared. I mean, you feel yeah. unprepared. You have to learn. You, yeah. There's only so much a book or classes will teach you you have to learn with your baby and I think that's interesting because I think quite often it's women who kind of look down on other women becoming mothers I feel in that Mm. way that it's like oh yeah but they only ever talk about babies and stuff Mm -hmm. it's like the rest of their life has disappeared yeah but it is you know you're in intense training Mm -hmm. for at least you know the nine months after the baby's born and if it's your first it's yeah it's crazy I've never studied as much as when I had a little baby. The thing is, people who like run an Ironman mm. spend so much time talking about <laughs> it, both in the run-up and then afterwards, and you have to look at pictures, and they show you how their body has changed. Yeah, and they you want know. charity donations. Yeah, like, it, of course people are going to talk about this, both because they're, they're in training, right? If you're in training for anything, of mm. course you talk about it. When I was doing my PhD, I talked about it all the time. When yeah. my siblings were doing their A-levels, I mean, when I was doing my A-levels, but I remember my siblings banging on about their A-levels all the time. Yeah. Like, of course you do. But also, it's it's a, it's a clearly, it's a life-changing experience. So should we basically see parents as sort of in training? And yeah. that's, that would make us look at them more... It's an interest, right? It's yeah. an interest which has been, which has not eroded or got rid of other, but it's become part of women's lives. Yeah. I think some of the... I've been really interested in the fact that... So the, the Sheila Hetty book, Motherhood, which actually ends up being about her ambivalence about motherhood and kind of deciding not to have a baby, but this idea mm. of it being a choice and thinking. We said that um, Deborah Levy's Hot Milk... Yes. Um, ...book came out recently. Jacqueline Rose's uh, kind of long essay on mothers, which yeah. is which is kind of... Has a sort of literary angle to it, but is also political... Um, Lots, lots and lots of, of books. I read about. Hot Milk by Deborah Levy when I was on parental leave with my first child. I've mm-hmm. been reading Rachel Cusk's mm-hmm. outline while on parental yep. leave with my second. Someone came around my house and said, oh, it's interesting how you read books about women who hate motherhood <laughs> <laughs> while you're on parental leave. And I was like, well, actually, I'm not sure that they hate motherhood. It's more like... They recognise it in the ambiguities. They recognise it's a complex thing, yeah. that it is, and it's... I, what I think is revolutionary about these books is that they kind of put a kind of microscopic look on just how unacknowledged mm. the issues of motherhood is, right? Is- so you're meant to be, I don't know, I think we're still kind of moving out, out of the 50s ideal sort of housewifey motherhood where everything comes so easy. I think the yummy mummy mm-hmm. era of what the early... 21st century mm-hmm. might have been deeply problematic for that reason it's you're meant to like look you're bouncing back mm-hmm. it's basically again, this terrible thing and your social life remains intact everything yeah. remains intact yeah, right yeah. and your relationship doesn't. with your husband there was that um new york new york times article new york article recently about the woman who has sex with her husband every night and oh. has two children and it was you know this was it was this whole thing about this she was she was a stay-at-home mother to a mm. very 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 wealthy husband she was like you know upper east side in new york and it was you know it was framed around they had sex every night that's her husband wanted to have sex every night they had sex every night this is part of her duty as a wife basically <laughs> um but it was sounds like a very loving relationship well yeah i mean it's a, we can you know we can put it in the footnotes but it was interesting but because partly what it was framed around was the fact they had children Right, so the idea of 
of that that you know that that is already an interesting approach to relationships but it's a particularly interesting approach when you have two children Mm. as as being a kind of the most important thing in the way that you relate to one another yeah the um i think i've been really interested in how much how much some of this writing is also about you know you're saying about the, the feeling that you have to be naturally good at stuff and i think there are interesting things to be said about the way as well that this comes out of a certain generation of women who in many ways and we talked about this in in the in the last episode on mothers that maybe there's a point where your feminism shifts to being a little bit about about attitudes to mothers and parents and Mm. things from kind of earlier things but in many ways we're a generation of women who in sort of assumes that we have gender equality in the workplace right there's yeah. an assumption we should be able to have that there's an, we we know that we don't and we know that there are problems but there's an assumption it's it's a it's a demand a legitimate demand we're also i think quite a lot of us um identify as barbara castles yeah like this this is a problem but it doesn't really affect me yes. i am the exception and there's also and kind of related to that idea of feeling you know valuing female competence um, mm. and having kind of thrown that but also a sort of sense I don't know, generationally, a sort of sense, a sort of feminism, I think, that's been instilled in, in many women around our age and, and your 30s, that that it's about working hard and training and le- learning hacks to do things. And and that you can kind of... I, I think um, Stephanie Boland, in her... She wrote a very good review article for Prospect on some of this mothering stuff and the idea that you can kind of... Um, like. I can't remember exactly how she put it, something like hack your way out of the patriarchy. Yeah. The idea that you can kind of prepare yourself out of this stuff. Can I mention my only good um, parental hack yes, that I've absolutely. discovered? That is that teething gel is excellent for numbing eyebrows before plucking. That is an excellent parental <laughs> hack. That is exactly the sort of parental hack I want to know. That is basically it. I um, mean, what else can you do? There's, there's absolutely no way of getting kids out of the door on time for nursery, for example. No. I mean, I don't think anyone has a hack apart from shouting, which... No, you know, exactly. And this is what these books all point out, that this is, you know, this, this ideal idealized version of motherhood Mm -hmm. of it coming so easily and naturally i mean it absolutely does in some aspects right Mm -hmm. i absolutely adore my kids they're brilliant and hilarious and everything else but you know you have to then life becomes a bit bit of a bigger jigsaw i suppose Mm -hmm. where each individual piece is smaller so i have i mean i am back at work now yeah but during the nine, ten months where I haven't been able to work very much, that's been quite frustrating because quite a big part of me is mm-hmm. my work. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was sitting there at one point with my son thinking I was completely out of ideas of what to do with him mm-hmm. to keep him entertained. And I was like, I have four degrees. How can, how can this be a challenge, right? You should have given him you a lecture think... about women in, <laughs> women's activism I, in Sweden. I think I might have. But yes, no, he's definitely going to get a few of those lectures as he grows up. But I think, yeah. But you know what I mean? Yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah. I have, I, we are very trained yeah. in very many ways. Motherhood is like an aspect of yeah. this life. Mm-hmm. But I don't, you know, this is why I love sending my kids to nursery. and you know, people having, actually trained, Having right? trained like, babysitters. It's absolutely yeah. exhausting to look after kids this is a totally different context but there was once an incredibly snipey review of a book about Theresa May by I think by David Runciman so the book wasn't by David Runciman but there was a there was a he he 
wrote a review of a book about May mm. and he described May as being um, a kind of grammar school girl who does her homework mm. as explaining her kind of approach to politics compared to Cameron and Osborne who are these private school boys who kind of wing it right yeah, and yeah. this was a sort of the Oxford Union yeah style. and yeah. people even though actually May was very active in the Oxford Union and this all kind mm. of but anyway this was a kind of you know this was a kind of descriptor and when I read it I was really I don't like Theresa May I don't decide with Theresa May we've talked about our problems with her politics many times before mm. But at the same time, I was really um, stung by that description because I am, I'm not a grammar school girl, I went to a comp, but I am a, a girl who does my homework, right? Like, mm. I have framed my I've approach. been lately started doing homework. I, I mean, didn't do any for the first I nine years. do then... everything up against the deadline and it's not, I'm better at crisis management than forward planning. I'm the opposite these days, I think. Yeah, well, this is, That's we talked about this last episode, right? <laughs> this is about having to be on top of things, whereas I'm definitely better at sort of sorting things out, out later. But, like... As a way of, as, as a side swipe against a particular type yeah. of way of managing being a woman in the world, it really cut deep. Mm. But it also made me think about how I think... I also think there's parallels to her being described as a vicar's daughter. Yes. It's the same yeah, kind yeah, of yeah, goody yeah. two-shoe thing. But but the thing about, um, the idea about motherhood therefore being kind of critiqued with this new generation of writers, I think in a way, like not only have we been raised to do our homework, and so we're used to thinking about things as things we can train for. And therefore, when, when motherhood is complicated or difficult, we kind of interrogate the difference, the, the gap there. Mm. But also, like, you know, a lot of these books are written by women who have led very intellectual lives. Yeah. Who have, inter- you know, who are writers. Mm. And, you know, the idea that, that in the review it said, well, you know, why do we feel like there are no books about motherhood? Even though there's so many books by women, right, mm. who are mothers. Um and it's partly because they've maybe sometimes they felt like you don't want to get caught writing books about motherhood. You don't want yeah. to do that. I think one interesting aspect that um, it might be worth mentioning is that, you know, the massive uh, Nordic noir mm-hmm. genre. Yeah. It's kind of become a bit of a movement for writing about domestic lives mm. as well. So it used to be the you know the sullen male detective right the yeah. Wallanders or Valander as you know no sweets listening would know who I was talking about if I said Wallander but Valander, um, but there's also you know more books about women. Mm-hmm. So Lisa Markland wrote a very famous very early uh, series of Nordic noir about a female journalist who mm-hmm. goes kind of crime busting in Stockholm and it's a lot to do with you know who's looking after the kids yeah. when and where and I think that's interesting but that's also because it, it has such a wide readership right mm-hmm. but it's not a necessarily a critique or like a critical yeah. approach or you know kind of dissecting of motherhood it's more yeah a realist just putting motherhood in yeah yeah it's um it's interesting because I was thinking about so there's a new book coming out quite uh, or maybe just come out by a historian called Sarah Knott, which is looking about kind of, again, historicising mothers and motherhood. Mm. Um, and again, it's the kind of... it's Yeah, it's taking the... You know, she's a historian. She it, it, It's taking the kind of work she does as as an academic and then applying it to an aspect. She In the, the description to the book, I think it says she wrote it, or she started thinking about it, you know, whilst on parental leave and whilst breastfeeding and this sort of thing and and the idea that when writing about motherhood as a historian you can make visible that that element of your life as Mm. well um women who work on um women who work on things to do with children for example sometimes Mm. when they you know female historians and there are many female historians or male historians i know who work on children and childhood who don't have children Mm. um 
But sometimes... One thing we all have in common, though, is that we have been children. Yes, exactly. Everyone has been a child. Um, But there's those sorts of... I don't know. It's interesting that writing about motherhood and doing so in this kind of intellectual, theory-driven or historical or literature-based way is is a way of bringing together your kind of professional life and your private life, but in a way that you almost kind of get credit for. You know, mm. it's a way of kind of making visible the connections that are there anyway. Yeah. So it's quite a, ra- it can be quite kind of radical politically, but it can also be just quite a, you know, why, why, why leave this unsaid? Why, yeah. why not think about these processes? I, I supervised a dissertation recently about childbirth, about actually about Grantly Dick Reed, who wrote um, a book about childbirth, which was then adopted very, very, very um, kind of watered down. They took all the really mad bits out by the NCT. So, but he, this male doctor wrote this book. Um, and me and, and my uh, dissertation student struggled to find histories actually about childbirth. Mm. There's a little bit about pregnancy, there's quite a lot about women and, and medicals, but actually childbirth, an experience you would think about as being very sort of critical to our survival as a race, as a, not as, I mean, as a human race, harking <laughs> <laughs> back to the eugenics episode, um, is is sort of curiously missing yeah. from from this some of this literature it's not really written about. Yeah, and it's interesting because it's one of those things where people, when you talk about sources in history, and um, I recently spoke to someone who had just finished a PhD in early modern history mm-hmm. on uh, the um, illiterate uh, lay preachers mm. um, in Sweden. I can put, probably find it and put a link to it on our mm-hmm. footnotes. And she was saying, and we were talking about sources, and she was saying what sources she used. And that, I think that's quite interesting because those are people who can't, you know, leave a personal record. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But childbirth, you would think, would be much more easily mm. traced because people would be able, there are such, a, you know, from all social stratas, mm-hmm. all women. And there's some, I mean, there's, there's a little writing. The writing that there is on it is very interesting as well in the role of the, the midwife mm. shifting. And, you know, again, I work on humanitarianism. I have worked at different times. I've kind of written and thought about um, women and girls as the targets of humanitarianism. And often, often a lot of charity and humanitarianism is framed around childbirth. It's very, very dangerous. Mm. Giving birth to children is incredibly dangerous. Um, and so, you know, lots of intervention is based around making childbirth safer. Um and there's an interesting kind of colonial history, um, which is very much about initially Britain's sort of Britain's colonial kind of um, development and welfare policies are initially entirely about getting rid of uh, sort of female local expertise yeah. that they see it as being backward and problematic and dangerous. And they get rid of, you know, they try to encourage women in Nigeria, for example, which has a really high level of maternal mortality in the 1940s. They're trying to get these women to go into hospitals they're trying to get these women to like see western doctors and then actually quite gradually obviously they come around to the idea that actually local female knowledge is quite important Mm. for various reasons um and in britain in a actually in britain it's kind of shifted the that there's been a kind of um a shift there and then back in that of course until like the 20th century birth was overseen by midwives who were not normally often not medically trained or not kind of formally medically trained because there's no proper healthcare system. Mm. Um, doctors are only involved if women have babies in hospitals and things. And then as you... But then you get into sort of after the Second World War and the kind of feminist movement moves more and more to the idea of sort of trusting women, not over medicalizing births. And you get midwives brought back into it, but mm. midwives who are trained and have this kind of knowledge. And midwives obviously overwhelmingly are women. Mm. Um, and so you have this kind I've of... I've met two midwives who are men. And I think now more, I've but... probably met, met like... 
a hundred. Yeah. <laughs> so you have. So it's interesting in kind of in terms of the sort of medical history as as well in terms of sort of what is sort of classically female expertise mm. and how that's there's sort of kind of high point in sort of around I guess around the creation of the National Health Service where birth becomes much more medicalized women go into hospitals yeah overwhelmingly being seen by male doctors yeah. And then kind of more and more shift. And now, you know, lots of the women I know who've had children have chosen to do so in midwife centres um, and have chosen, at least tried to have births, which which really limit the amount of medical intervention, yeah. um, like water births and things like this. So yeah. it's it's an interesting kind of trajectory to track. Another thing about mothers and representation of mothers is, is how they appear on TV, I mm-hmm. suppose. And we, our recommendations in the four, the last mother episode was yeah. um, the TV series Mum and Fleabag. Fleabag. I have actually been thinking about um, Laurie Loughlin, you know, the American actress who's now embroiled in the admission scandal. She's one oh. of the people, she and Felicity Huffman. Yes, yeah. But yeah. Laurie Loughlin is, I suppose, less known. But she's, yes. so she's in her career which i think is interesting she often plays like very good mothers mm-hmm. she was in the original version of full house which i right. think she might she might be in the the one that's on yeah, netflix yeah. now as well but the the 90s version uh she's um also been a mother in this really weird small schmaltzy um canadian series called oh let me see if i can remember when call the heart Mm -hmm. which i watched in like the early fog (laughs) of my second bit of uh maternity excellent for sleeping too yeah and it's like this there's someone talking so the baby doesn't feel abandoned um but also in 9210 which i suppose maybe more people of our generation have seen that but the reboot so they're like from 10 years ago huffman was in desperate house yeah, yeah. as well right where and again she's and, she's a mother and her ambivalence about motherhood in that is quite foregrounded yeah, yeah. Right? like her she's a mother to boys and it's complicated Lauren, and difficult yeah yeah and they have they have some sort of they're on some sort of spectrum or medication at yeah, least yeah. but laurie lachlan has made a career out of like very good mm-hmm. hearts of wholesome mothers and now she's in court for you know bribing yeah, yeah, yeah. admissions officers interesting do because we often we talked about in our me too episode about whether the sort of crime destroys the artwork or yeah, whatever yeah, yeah. The, the, the view <laughs> of the male genius is it the same for, for a mother can laura lachlan play another good earnest know. mother that's again? interesting isn't it because on the other hand because that was like synonymous with her career yeah, synonymous yeah, yeah. with her face are these very kind yeah. of generous caring yeah <laughs> it's interesting as well when you um when you think about the women who played bad mothers repeatedly mm. so like actresses who kind of are associated with what are often called complex roles mm. for women complex roles for women often means being a bad mother mm. right but that kind of idea about yeah being the sort of female actress who gets associated with like being a bad mum yeah or having like a difficult relationship to a stereotypical own. bad mum mm. and then laurie lachlan being the stereotypical good mum yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. We might have to do more thinking on that and get back with episode mm-hmm. about thirty-six, maybe. Or yes, something. absolutely. But it's it made me think because I think in a lot of the reviews that you read about these books, I mean, I remember particularly Rachel Cusk. There's been some very cutting ones about mm-hmm. you know they are they seem very. We come back to this over and over again. The yeah. kind of semi-autobiographical, well, yeah, um, yeah, that it's loosely just, based on yeah, real yeah. life stuff. That mean seems to mean that reviewers yeah. and I, therefore I suspect readers yeah. 
your average reader is quite critical of this person and their mothering skills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cusks was really actually because because Rachel Cusks one comes slightly before the others, right? Yeah. It wasn't quite about this moment. And I remember it being torn apart by people actually, like quite viciously reviewed. Yeah. And I wonder if it had come out more in this sort of moment with Jacqueline Rose and Sheila Hetty and all of the rest of it, it might have been more less complicatedly received in a way like if, yeah. if people might have been more although maybe they wouldn't have had the opportunity to write no. those books if she hadn't no exactly there's um another book by Anne Enright called um oh god it has I think I can't remember if it's called Stumbling Through Motherhood or something oh, yeah. um which is and you know Anne Enright is a, is a wonderful writer a wonderful Irish writer who who has often written quite complex novels literary fiction about about kind of often about families and, and family relationships and stuff um and again I, I i think i remember that her kind of this this book was seen as a kind of sort of a light distraction mm. <laughs> that her you know her very serious literature is different to this sort of book about mm. about mothering and motherhood because it's un- unashamedly kind of framed around her experiences yeah the um the book um maggie nelson's um very good book Oh, I've completely, I'm completely blanking on the name. Her memoir about her relationship with her partner, uh, who's oh, oh, a something, oh, Argonauts. Argonauts, yeah. yeah, is partly about her relationship with her partner, but also a lot of it's to do with motherhood and mothering. But what I found interesting is that a lot of any, again, a lot of the reviews and things I'd read really focuses on the relationship with the partner mm. and doesn't talk about it. When I read it, the, the the stuff about her her relationship was was great and was very interesting. But actually, the thing that I found really the thing I found really viscerally interesting and, and I wanted... It was her her description of mothering and her yeah. talking about... And particularly because she talks at moments about her um, her role as an academic and her like role in the classroom and things, yeah. which kind of links back to what we talked about two episodes ago about the idea of being a kind of mum in work. Mm. And she goes from talking about that to talking about her, her child and the experience of pregnancy and things like that. Yeah. Um, and I think of that as being a book about being a mother. Yeah. But I, I'm not sure that it is actually often... Describe it like that. No, yeah. it's no. You're right. It's built as a relationship. Yeah, because because it has that element because her partner is trans, and so a lot of it is about kind of gender politics and yeah. things. Um, I think this is a very. We mentioned this again in the previous episode on mothers, obviously, but this is a very interesting topic for those of us who are very interested in uh, the private as politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The personal as the political. Yeah. And um, <laughs> actually. Shall, shall we uh, say that we're we're actually talking on a panel about this at a conference oh, yes, are, at the NSC in, in the autumn, <laughs> so we can that. maybe push a few people to go to the Women's History Network conference yeah. uh, at the NSC. But it's um, it's so clear. I, I would be quite interested in seeing the same kind of stuff about being a father. Mm. The only thing I can think of is Tony Parsons books about oh, yeah. him and his son which and, are, which have to be found on tragedy right it, yeah it, and it's it seems to be or not tragedy i haven't read them but what i hear what i remember from reading about them is that they quite a lot about the mother of the child rather than there was they're very they really <laughs> valorize his his the bare minimum of dadding as well i yeah. said didn't i before we recorded this episode i said i'd, re- I'd googled uh being a mother oh yes because I was trying to find so I was trying to find an article a particular article I was thinking of and I couldn't remember what it was called and I googled being a mother <laughs> and it auto-completed being a mother is and it auto-completed exhausting <laughs> um and then I and then I googled being a father because I was like well what's going to come up now for being a father then and being a father according to google is um a blessing oh excellent and it was just well, such an and you know this reflects what people 
Google, right? Like, yeah. it's what people are typing in. Being a mother is exhausting, but being a father is a blessing. Why would you type in? Uh, why are you searching Google for being a mother is exhausting? I don't Surely... know. I don't know. Maybe people Is are... it people who are preparing for having children? Because people <laughs> who have children, I think, are pretty aware of it being exhausting. Maybe it's based it's on... exhausting and lovely, I have yeah. to say. I mean, I might sound very down on motherhood at the moment. Maybe but it's, it's based on I, re- kind of... I really enjoy it, but I have to have... I have to do other things with my life as well. well the, the thing about doing other things with your life, having other things going on, we talked a little while ago, one of our earlier episodes, about the pram in the hall. Yeah. Which came out. So the Cyril Connolly thing, no good artist, there is no sombre enemy of good art than the pr- pram in the hall. Mm. Right, Having a baby destroys your creativity. And there's mm. some really... Jenny Ophelia, I think, um, and uh, I know Lauren Elkins is writing a book about uh, being an art monster. Yeah. Men can be art monsters because they don't have to think about children, and, and, yeah. and Lauren is writing a book about being a female art monster. We talked about this as well in the previous episode when we talked about how how um, presidential candidates in the yes. US are being perceived. So yeah. Beta Rourke would be the political monster, I suppose. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I have, um, I have a friend who's an artist called Hester Finch, and she mm-hmm. she does a lot of stuff about around sort of women's bodies yep. and stuff in her art yeah, yeah. and um we might, i might link to uh, she was part of an exhibition which was about kind of female bodies and motherhood mm-hmm. but also the female gaze on mm. the female body that's interesting which is quite interesting there's a really um sonia delorney who's an abstract artist who very important kind of early abstract artist based her her first paintings the movement orphism which is her abstract painting on a baby blanket she'd made for her son oh, really? a patchwork baby blanket and when they had the exhibition in the tape they had the baby blanket hanging up on the wall and i thought it was a really 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 good kind of rejoinder to the pram in the hall right this yeah. one of the most famous abstract female abstract artists of all time was inspired by something she'd done for her children oh nice um can i show you this painting we're going to put this on our footnotes yes. i can't actually remember who the author is Oh, it's author, lovely. painter. The painter. She, I think she's Emma something. Mm-hmm. And I clearly think that because my own name is Emma. So, And it's a very good painting. <laughs> no, but I'm saying I would, re- I would remember This makes it. incredible radio, doesn't it? Yeah, As I just know. both looking at a yeah. painting. This yeah. is excellent. Guys, you're going to have to go find our footnotes because that's where you find this painting. It, I saw it in the Say It Loud um, exhibition that was at Take Modern mm-hmm. a year and a half ago, two years ago, something like that. It's yeah. about black power arts and, and yeah. black artists. And it's a photo of a photo. I need to rewire my brain to say painting. It's a painting of the babysitter. Yeah. And the artist's babysitter, and then part. She's she's the main person yeah. in the, the 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 frame, and then the daughter is kind of half cut off. Yeah, kind of encroaching. On she's the encroaching side. on it. She's kind of sitting in, in the chair, being yeah. really active, whereas the the babysitter is is posing but looking quite happy. Yeah. And I think it's. That really spoke to me because Mm -hmm. I I went to that exhibition at a time in my life where I was solely dependent on babysitters for being able to do my work. So my daughter was a little bit too little to get into her nursery. Mm -hmm. And I needed, I had, you know, this roster of babysitters, professional babysitters on call who come to my house and sort of help me. It's a very middle class situation to be in, but it's, it's, it's helped my sanity and it's helped my work and it's probably helped my kids be quite well-rounded and nice as well. And it's, it's just... The one of the first times I've mm-hmm. seen a physical representation of yeah. what it takes to be a mother at work, yeah, and this creativity business. You know, there's there's this idea with, and this is also something that we talked about that work is only stuff that you get paid to do, yeah. Um, and I think for a lot of us who have semi-creative mm-hmm. lines of work, 
I haven't had full-time employment, paid employment for years. Mm-hmm. I'm, I probably do once this episode is being aired. I probably have accepted a contract somewhere. But um, the idea that you spend money yeah. on babysitters when you're not actually making money for the work that you're yeah. doing can yeah, be yeah. very difficult. But it has to happen. And I think that's where the pram in the hallway... Yes needs to get kind of pushed out by someone else if that's yeah, the yeah. father if it's grandparents if it's an elder sibling if it's a neighbor if it's yeah. you know if the baby goes off to nursery whatever but if they are an important part of your yeah. life the babysitters have been yeah 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 you know, the, life-saving there should be more depictions of babysitters who aren't rosemary's baby <laughs> you aren't terrifying or the that the, the nanny uh, lullaby right lella slimani's thing oh, about yeah, the nanny yeah, yeah. oh yeah, yeah oh, um, god my um there's a great journalist called robin wilder heritage and she has two small boys her and her partner are both journalists but her and her husband are both journalists and she has often she has a column on parenting and she, but she often on her instagram talks about how important their babysitter they yeah. have they have a kind of a you know a I guess a nanny, but not not a live-in nanny. You know, a woman who looks has looked after both of her children for a long time, and she constantly kind of says, you know, this is how I work. This is how I can do work. I have someone else looking. Someone has to look after children, and they are professionals. I mean, they have training. They have. This is. Um, I'm. I'm. Mm. I grew up in the Swedish system. I'm now bringing my kids mm. back to Sweden to yeah. put them into the Swedish system, and the vast. The, it's an enormous difference because. Yeah women who work in childcare or people who work in childcare because it's not just yeah. not just women in, in Sweden not at all to the same extent as it is mm-hmm. pretty much only women in Britain um, they are valued they are trained they are professional they yeah. do this for a living they do their hours they they're have paid, the same they're unionized they have the same problems that everyone else does when they're, yeah. they're women in the workplace surely but yeah. it's it's a profession it's not something that happens because you know some frivolous idea about women going to work Mm -hmm. it's it is women working this is a job it's interesting because there was a spate of articles a little while ago about uh kind of the the optimal i think i might have talked about this in the writing episode the optimal number of children to have with writing and stuff so rebecca mead wrote an article for the new yorker being about the optimal child count Ah. of how many children a woman should have to be a writer. Oh, God, how many are they? I think it's two, but I can't remember. Oh, that would be great. That would be great. Uh, Heather Abel wrote a really brilliant book about, um, called The Baby, The Book and the Bathwater, which was about how she wanted to get back to writing after her child and how initially it was difficult, but also this sense of of feeling that you need to work. Mm. That's part of who you are. You need to work. You need to be writing. Mm. Um, And Maggie O'Farrell wrote an article about the cram in the hall, framed around a particular kind of idea, where she said, since I got pregnant, several people have clutched my arm and said in a confiding yet gleeful tone, every baby costs you a book, you know. Yeah, it's the amount of stuff people come out with. I mean, yes, but that's true. I could have been so much more productive if I hadn't had children when I decided to have children. I could have, you know, gotten all of the books out and stuff. But I wouldn't have gotten any children out. Also, she says, you know, these people are suggesting it's too much to want children in novels. It's impossible yeah. to look after a child and have the time and mental capacity needed yeah. to write a book. Is it unforgivable, Chatsper, to believe you can do both? Yeah. The idea of... it's it. I mean, you know, we've said And that before, they are... They can be complementary, right? Like yeah, they exactly. Together. They feed off each other. Yeah. It's... The, the world is interesting in a different way when you have a little child around. Yeah. Um... I, I did point to the book that I wrote and told my daughter I wrote it and she was very blossomed. <laughs> <laughs> well, there were very few pictures. But she does book, so. she does really like when I draw something and I'm, yeah. I'm terrible at it. Her dad is an artist. I'm terrible at it, but she enjoys my drawing. So, I mean, 
we have a similar problem there, I think. But it's it's interesting. It's it's you know the idea that some that your career ends, that you're done, and that you're spent. Yes. When you have children. Is is I it's mean, so it's, old is that is that is that the most patriarchal thing yeah. in the world? But it's also it's funny. It, it's funny it how it's funny how much people still repeat that. Given how, in, yeah. just when you say it out loud, it's so ridiculous, right? But it's funny how actually people are still so. Do you know what? I think we're going to come back to this when we do our aging episode. Yes, we're going to do an aging. We're episode. doing an episode on aging. We'll talk about this a bit. Yeah, this the whole being spent. <laughs> Never going to be spent. No. Um, do you have a poem for I us? I do. So I have a poem by a woman called Carrie Fountain. It's called Eating the Avocado. Oh. Um, Is it very millennial? It's not, actually. <laughs> and so she says, um, Now I know I've never described anything, not one single thing, not the flesh of the avocado, which darkens so quickly. And then she says, I want to describe this evening. Now it's not spectacular. The baby babbling in the other room over the din and whistle of a football game. I want to describe the baby. I want to describe the baby for many hours to anyone who wishes to hear me. My feelings for her take me so far inside myself I can see the pure holiness in motherhood and it makes me burn with success and fear. Last night we fed her some of the avocado I've just finished whilst writing this poem. Her first food. I thought my heart might burst knowing she would no longer be made entirely of me, flesh of my flesh. Oh, yeah. I've cut some bits out of it to read it out. But that idea, I just really like that poem because it, because it puts the writing of the poem in the poem. Yeah. She's talking about her daughter and all the... But yeah, her daughter and her... And feeding her daughter. And she's writing a poem about it and she's acknowledging the process. So it's all about what having a child brings to your art. Right? Yeah, and it's... I she mean, couldn't it's have written literally that poem poetic about the exactly. very mundane facts. About the daily, about the normal. That makes me think about that... Um, and now I can't remember what it's called, but popular, the internet... <laughs> magazine has a uh, section which is all about sort of everyday stories. Yes, the day, the just my day or something. Yeah, something and it's, like that. we should put a link into that because that's also very good about the day, the kind of m- mundanity of life and how you know parenting is part of that for a lot of people. So yeah. the fact that it's been covered up or seen as as kind of life ending is, is ridiculous. The more people talk about it, the more people are going to realise. Yeah, I don't really know who these people are who don't realise because so many. Many of us have children or have been children. It's weird. But on that note, recommendations? Uh, recommendations. Okay, so we thought we'd recommend... Uh, we're talking about art today, aren't we? Mm. And um, we're talking about art and um, exhibitions. And I wanted to recommend the Koda Attia exhibition at the Hayward, but it's finished. Um, I would urge you to check out his work. He is um, an artist who works a lot on issues of post-colonialism. He's done some really good stuff around... Um, the uh, Band News of Paris, for example, but also some brilliant stuff about museums and museum uh, collecting. There was this incredible room with um, kind of juxtaposing um, museum collections and um, questions about the First World War and questions about colonialism. So if that sounds interesting, first of all, check out his work. But secondly, there's going to be an exhibition starting at Somerset House quite soon called Kaleidoscope, um, which is about it called Kaleidoscope, the um, subtitle being Immigration and Modern Britain. It's a photography exhibition that's going to have ten artists, male and female, who all have immigrant um, like family histories, immigrant backgrounds, mm-hmm. um, talking about what Britain means to them through photography. And it's going to be really, really good, and it's free. Oh, great. And it's been uh, co-curated by uh, Ika Ishan, who is the editor of Vogue. So it's going to be oh, extremely yeah. good. Great. 
Um, I have one that's also a little bit time sensitive, I suppose. Um, it's the Jenny Holtz's artist room mm -hmm. at Tate Modern in the new Blavatnik building. Is yeah. that what it's even called? It ends on the 7th of July. So if you're anything like me, <laughs> you need to plan going now. Mm -hmm. It's really good. So Jenny Holtz, for those of you who don't know, she's an American artist. She was born in 1950, I'm pretty sure. Uh, and she does kind of text in mm. text in life. Yeah. stuff so it's uh text in public i suppose really so uh, running um led lights yeah neon type of and things, neon and right? stuff there's benches that are have inscriptions on them and they're all pretty feminist um and it's about kind of women's lived experiences in mm -hmm. many shapes or forms her mo more recent work which is also in the artist room is about refugees it's called and her redaction paintings, which are about mm -hmm. classified material from the US and uh, uh, British invasions of Iraq. So you should definitely go see that. We're going to be back pretty soon. Yep. I might be broadcasting to you from Sweden. Which will be very exciting. But we're going to sort this out so it's going to happen. We're going to have episodes on food, on ageing. On empire. On empire and stuff like that. So do continue to listen. Follow us at TNKpod on Twitter. Uh, at, at Emma Eleanor. At Lydia. Uh, Lotta Lydia. Um, please, um, if you've enjoyed this, listen to it on iTunes. Give us a review. Uh, recommend us to your friends. Yeah. And you'll hear from us soon. Bye. Bye.